Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Having grown up with a prosperity theology, Will Barlow begins by sharing his background and how he understood tithing before tackling five myths about giving. Number one, the tithe was monetary and applied to all Israelites. Number two, the tithe was given at the beginning of the harvest. Number three, the tithe was always 10%. Number four, the poor Israelites tithed to God. And number five, Abraham's tithing makes it applicable for all time. Now, I realize that finances, tithing, and giving are sensitive subjects within Christianity. Even so, I think you'll benefit a great deal from what Barlow has to share in this series. Today, we'll mostly just focus on the Old Testament tithe, and next time we'll get into what the New Testament says about this important topic. Here now is episode 384, Giving in the Old Testament with Will Barlow. Well, Will, thank you so much for joining me today on Restitutio. I'm really excited to talk about this subject of giving. It's really an important subject, wouldn't you say? I absolutely agree, and thanks for having me, Sean. Why don't we open up with you sharing a little bit about your background on the topic? I realize that finances are a subject that may be sensitive to some, and you know, I think we want to be respectful to people's decision on how they give and where they give and so on. But share with us a little bit about how you were raised and what what your philosophy was growing up regarding giving. Absolutely. Yeah, before we get into all that, I I wanted to start with a couple caveats. The things I'm about to share about uh, giving and tithing and things like that, I submit these ideas with the utmost of humility and respect for others. Um, And so at the end of the series, if people want to dialogue with me that disagree with my position, I'm happy to learn from them. I'm happy to hear what they have to say. Um, So I'm really in a position of humility and meekness here. And I also want to say before we get too far that I heartily promote and encourage Christian giving in every category. And sometimes uh, when you talk about tithing, and especially if you have a somewhat negative view on tithing like I do, Uh, people think, oh, he doesn't like people giving. No, I love giving. I love financial giving. I love uh, giving in every category of life. And so like you said, we know this will be a little controversial to some. And so I just want to make that very clear from the beginning. And and then the last thing I want to say is I can only give my experience. This is, uh, like you said, a very personal subject. And so I know what I was taught. I know what I've experienced, uh, good and bad on the subject. And so I'm just going to give my experience what I was, some of what I was taught, and then how I changed my views over time. I grew up in a church um, that was uh, essentially a pro-prosperity gospel church and taught tithing. And so I grew up being taught to tithe. And so when I was very little, I remember receiving my birthday money. And the first thing that I would do is I would uh, very excitedly go to fellowship uh, the next uh, time we had fellowship. And I would Uh, take 10% and I would put it in the Horn of Plenty as it was being passed around. And, you know, looking back on those memories, I'm so thankful that I was taught to give to God out of a heart of love and appreciation for all that he's done for me. And I really have very positive memories about, uh, you know, putting, being excited to put the money in the Horn of Plenty and knowing that it was going to bless other people and that it was going to go 
uh, to the service of God's people. And so that was a big blessing in my, in my upbringing. I want to transition a little bit to some of the very specific things that I was taught uh, because I think it'll help people understand where I uh, personally am coming from and, and the background that I've had. Basically, the church, like I said, that I grew up in, they believed that there was a basic law of prosperity and tithing was associated with that very directly. So tithing was viewed as uh, this sort of benchmark. And if you didn't tithe, then there were consequences. And if you did tithe, then there were specific blessings in the physical category, especially. One of the reasons that they that the church taught this is they believed that uh, there was a 10% minimum under the law. And since now we're, you know, we're past the law, we're Christians, we should do at least that much. You know, we should do at least what they did under the law. And then whatever was above that was considered abundant, what they called abundant sharing. Yeah, I remember I, one time I went to a church in Atlanta and the preacher said that the first 10% that you give is what you owe God. There is no blessing for that. I'm not saying this is your background, but he said there is no blessing for that 10%. If you want to get a blessing, if you want to get abundance, then you have to give beyond the 10%. Everything you give beyond the 10%, that's where the blessings came in. And this was a, a very large megachurch in the Atlanta area, and uh, people just went wild over that. And, of course, the guy's traveling around in his private jet, and he only drives Rolls Royces, and he's got this mansion, and the average member of the church is in poverty or struggling, and people on the outside yeah. are looking at that saying, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> so I think there is really um, a question about this, and if you know, if I tell you another story about Another famous preacher, uh, this is Rick Warren, who, when he started selling his purpose-driven books, ended up getting so much money from the sale of them that he decided to reverse tithe. So, you know, he, he, he paid back the church everything that they had ever given him, all the salary they'd ever given him, and then he gave away 90% of his money and lived on the 10% because that was, that was plenty. You know, and, and what a testimony that gives the church versus the other guy who's, you know, sort of fleecing the sheep in order to line his pockets. And, you know, it's both, it's both generous, radical giving, uh, but, uh, right. you know, very, very different kind of uh, targets there. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. That is something that's very much alive in Christendom at large today, this idea that you have to give above the 10%, and then that's when the blessings come in. In my specific background, it was the first 10%. Um, once you get to that 10% mark, that covers your physical prosperity. And then any giving beyond that is where you get into you know, mental and spiritual kind of categories, uh, which is a whole different you know, doctrinal package there. And is interesting to sort of break down in, in light of the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of churches, too, that um, if you want to be a member of that church, you know, you get you get baptized. And, you know, one of the last things you do is you give them your your direct deposit information because they want to direct deposit 10 percent of your check every month directly to wow. the church's bank account. I've heard of, I've heard of that before as well. So so my upbringing is certainly not the most uh, stringent in terms of this teaching, this teaching of tithing and, and church finances. Uh, there's definitely a, a huge range, uh, but I'd say most of the churches that I've come into contact with, to one degree or another, will be very pro tithe. Yep, 
Yeah. So what else was part of your doctrinal understanding uh, coming into this subject? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a dispensational church. And so one of the things that dispensational churches tend to think about is that there are uh, time periods that there are very harsh divisions. And so one of the things that they had to explain is, well, if there's this harsh division between the law and the Christ administration and the grace administration, well, then why does tithing still apply in the grace administration? Um, and there were a couple ways that, that they handled that. The first one is they would say that uh, Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law, but he didn't terminate the immutable laws. And those would have included the law of prosperity, uh, which is based, like I said, on tithing. Um, they also argued that tithing began with Abraham. So you have tithing with Abraham, which they put in the patriarchal administration. Then you have tithing codified specifically in the law administration. You have Jesus being essentially pro-tithe at the couple of times that he mentions it in what they call the Christ administration. Then it naturally follows that it would continue on into the, the tithing would continue on into the grace administration. Mm-hmm. Like prayer or other spiritual disciplines. Yeah, it looks like it's there in, in the second, third, and fourth administration. Why wouldn't it continue in the fifth administration? I see. Uh, and so as you were you were going through this, what, what else stuck, stuck out to you about your background? Um, there's a really funny story, and I've, I've actually checked with a couple of people who, who grew up in the same church that I did to make sure I remembered this correctly. But I remember things being taught um, along the lines of first fruits as well. Uh, in terms of like you receive your paycheck and the first thing that you would do is you'd write your uh, tithe or your abundant sharing check. And so I, I even heard anecdotally uh, a teacher one time reference a woman in a supermarket who'd realized she was about to pay for her groceries. And so while she was waiting in line to be checked out at the grocery store, she wrote her abundant sharing check. Then she could pay for her groceries. And it wasn't like a commandment or a rule or anything like that. It was sort of like a a way of thinking about it, yeah. uh, being blessed to give first to God uh, from your paycheck. Yeah, so that that would be based on the the practice in the law of offering up your first fruits to God as a sacrifice. Correct. Yeah. So they sort of conflated the first fruits with the tithe, or sort of combined them. I guess yeah. you could say. There's a bit of an irony here with the dispensationalism. I think if you were coming from a different background, none of this would be strange. But the dispensationalist wants to see strong, sharp distinctions between these different periods of times, and there's not much of a distinction here. Agreed. Yep, absolutely. There's a couple other things here that are interesting. Yeah, what else do you have? So one of the things that they say is, even though the Bible doesn't mention that Jesus tithed, he had to fulfill the law, and so, of course, he would have had to have tithed. Uh, Sort of related to that, even though the Bible doesn't really talk about the poor tithing, uh, they said that they taught that the, tor- the poor should tithe themselves out of their financial issues. In other words, it was taught that you couldn't afford not to tithe. So when they had someone poor that would come to Bible study, they would say, hey, you need to start tithing in turn. That's how you're going to turn your financial situation around. Um, we should also probably state, just in case somebody doesn't know, that tithing is 10%. Yes. Uh, and, and the really great thing about 10% or any percent really, is that it self-adjusts to whatever you're making. So if right. you're a little kid getting $5 of birthday money from grandpa or something, you know, that's only, what is it, 50 cents that you are yeah, yeah. that you have to tithe. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not like a flat rate. So, I mean, that's just the great thing about percentages in general. 
but I, but I hear what you're saying that somebody who is even in debt, uh, who is you know not able to take care of their own situation, would still be encouraged to to give in order to remedy the debt that they're in. That's correct. Uh, what else did you see in growing up with this mindset? You, you have any examples or illustrations? Yeah, and that's the thing about growing up is is you grow up in a church or an environment, and uh, you know you're taught a number of wonderful things, and you you start to see them in application in your own life as you get older, and then you run into situations where you you got to make a decision about how you're going to live these kinds of things out. And so I have two, two stories where I really got interested in the subject of giving uh, in the church, and uh, they're both related to pastoral concerns, interestingly enough. Um, so immediately after college, uh, I ran a fellowship uh, in, a, in a small town on the uh, Texas-Arkansas border, and that fellowship was uh, a really wonderful uh, fellowship. The people in it they weren't all biologically related, despite what some people might think about Arkansas. Uh, they weren't all cousins <laughs> or something, uh, but we, we did, we acted like one big family and it was really, it was really a remarkable, a remarkable situation. And so we, we spent a lot of time with one another. I, I was only there on the weekends cause I lived about two hours away uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas at the time. And, but I would go down uh, every weekend on Saturday and spend Saturday night with the people in the Bible study. And then we do our formal fellowship on Sunday morning. And so over the course of the year, I got to know the people, people really well. And, and they knew I was, you know, open and willing to talk about anything. And so at that time in our church, we were taught to teach uh, tithing and abundant sharing. And abundant sharing, again, is any giving above 10%. And we, we were taught to do that uh, once a year at minimum. We, we wanted to make sure that that was staying in front of the, the people. Um, I did teach it, uh, but I focused on the blessings to those who give because I knew that there were people, uh, one gentleman in particular, who wasn't at that time tithing at all. And so I, I focused on the blessings to those who give. And I focused that it wasn't necessarily financial blessings, but that God, you know, that God would, would bless you in ways that you could not bless yourself. And I basically used Philippians 4.17 as my foundational verse for that, that teaching. Well, the gentleman who I knew was not tithing, um, there's a little bit of backstory to that. Uh, he was married and his wife had wrote, written the check for years. And a, and a prior minister had recommended to them, uh, to the wife, uh, he told the wife, you know, don't write the check for him anymore. Let him make his own decision. Uh -huh. And so for a period of about uh, two or three years, he had stopped. He had decided, you know, it wasn't worth it. And so after I taught it, he wanted to sit down and talk to me about it. And sort of what I kept bringing him back to was I, I just kept telling him, look, you know, God, God does so much for you and so much that you don't know. Uh, and I said, look, just give what you're blessed to give. If that's nothing right now, then, then don't give anything. I don't want you to give something because you're grudging. You know, I, and I mentioned, you know, 2 Corinthians 9 as well there. So anyway, for a couple of months, that's what it was. He was blessed to give nothing. And so that's what he gave. And I didn't bring it up ever again. A couple months after we had that conversation, he called me up. And he said, Will, the most amazing thing happened to me today. And I said, okay, great. You know, what, what happened? And he said, let me start this by saying that I just today decided uh, that I'm going to start writing 
you know, tithing checks again. I'm going to start tithing again. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. I, I, I really do believe that God will, will back you up and will, will bless you. And uh, he said, well, that's why I'm calling you because he already has. <laughs> wow. What happened? Well, uh, someone that he knew uh, gave him a piece of software that he'd been wanting for a long time that was worth around $1,000. And it was the same day that he finally made the decision that he wanted to give again. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful that, that God worked in that situation, even though I don't believe I had it all right or that he had it all right. You know, uh, I'm just thankful for God's grace and mercy to cover for those things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a nice positive story about your experience with, with tithing. And I'm sure that this guy really built his faith, right? Absolutely. He, for him, that was one of the most miraculous things that happened to him that year, you know? And so, and it was clear to his spirit what was going on, which is, I, I mean, that's what I appreciated because I think some people, you know, that might happen to them and they might not connect those two dots. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And I might, as the pastor connect those two dots and that makes, you know, that would make the pastor more frustrated possibly in those kind of situations. But he, you know, he immediately connected those two dots. And I think that was appropriate. I think God was blessing him. So you have seen some good results come from the teaching that you grew up with, uh, right. much, much more of a prosperity gospel perspective. And I, I think really the difference between a prosperity gospel perspective and a non-prosperity gospel perspective is that the prosperity gospel says that you will get more, and, and typically it's, it's even harder than what you presented here. Typically it's presented as you will get more financially— then you give. Right. You give, it's sowing. It's like a seed, but then it sprouts into a plant, and then there's a harvest, and the harvest is much bigger than the little seed you put in the ground. So the idea is you sow into someone's ministry, or you sow into, uh, you know, whatever God's doing in an area, whether it's, uh, you know, for the poor, for mission missions, or for a church, and then God blesses you in these in these spectacular ways. Whereas a non-prosperity gospel doesn't doesn't hitch those two things together. They they still give. You know, all Christians give. At least I think they do. Uh, <laughs> I haven't I haven't run across a group that doesn't, or else you know they wouldn't last too long. I don't think. But um, right. Christian giving is an essential. Other groups that are not from a prosperity background don't have in their head. I'm going to get a blessing because I'm giving. It's more just like I'm giving because I want to give because this is how I honor God. Would you, would you say that's a fair distinction? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, because it fit with what he had been taught and what I had been taught about giving in a prosperity gospel context at that point. In other words, he was receiving a material reward for making the decision that he was to giving. I think he saw that God was in it. You know, that's sort yeah. of what the sign was, was. God is in it because I'm receiving this material reward. And who's to say God wasn't in it, right? Right. And I think I think God was was in it at that moment. Uh, absolutely. But from my perspective and what I was trying to help him understand, and you know, maybe God knew his heart and knew he needed to see something more in the physical realm than than what I needed. You know, I knew that God was already protecting him and blessing him regardless of whether he was tithing or not. And I just wanted him to, to grow in generosity and to see how that would change his mindset in his life. You know, I was trying to get him beyond that. Seeing that, uh, that financial reward, I think, kicked him onto that path more. That's where he was at that point. Yeah. So in light of all this background that you shared, 
what made you start to question the teaching that you had received? Yeah. And again, you know, it's one of those things where you grow up in a system, you grow up in a church, you grow up in an environment. And until you're faced with something, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I look, I'm a truth seeker by disposition and uh, had already questioned a number of things I had been taught and had changed my views on things subtly at times already at this point. Uh, but, you know, until you're in face to face with someone who asks you a question, sometimes that can move you along and, and show you things that you had never considered before. You know, a couple of years later, I was out as a missionary. Uh, there was a gentleman who I was specifically working with. He had a lot of financial issues going on. Um, he had recently been unemployed. By the time we met him, it was a little over a year he had been unemployed Three years or so prior to meeting us, he had been part of a very uh, difficult divorce. You know, he made the mistake of not uh, sending a lawyer to the to the hearing and got railroaded, uh, you know, gave the wife the house and, and ended up having to pay monthly as well. You know, so he was in terrible debt due to the, the bad divorce settlement. And he had just been hospitalized without insurance and had, I, I don't know, it was upwards of 100K in medical bills. That's about as bad as it gets financially. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got, you, you don't have any income. Uh, you've got uh, this medical bill that's huge that they're trying to, you know, take you to task over, and then you got this divorce settlement where they're going to garnish your garnish your wages once you you start making money again. And and so, you know, we just sort of took it one step at a time with him, and we encouraged him, and uh, he he did get eventually get back to work. So after he started getting paychecks. Uh, like I was saying, you know, they started garnishing like, I don't know, it's like 20, 25% of his wages uh, after taxes wow. for the d- divorce settlement. And then, you know, he had to make at least small payments on the medical bills to keep them from going to collections uh, and, mm-hmm. and really, you know, hurting him. And, uh, you know, he had a condo that he owned and had a mortgage on. And, and so he had to pay that bill and he had a little dog and he, you know, was paying for food for both of them and the utilities. And, you know, he, he, he sat me down one time and he said, you know, look, this is what I'm dealing with. And he walked me through every single bit of it. And he said, he said, well, I might have 20 bucks by the end of the month, you know, left over <laughs> after I pay all my bills. And he knew uh, what our church taught about tithing. And quite frankly, that's what he'd been taught by other churches. So it's not, he didn't have a doctrinal issue with this. He was just trying to understand, you know, what does God really want from me? Does he want me to abide by these bills that I owe and be righteous and just in terms of paying those bills? Or do I really owe my debt to God first? Do I really need to walk out in faith and hope that I have enough food for me and my dog every month? I see. Because if he gave the, the 10%, that would have been more than 20 bucks overall. Oh, yeah. It would have been way more than 20 bucks. He was making actually really good money. Um, he was in So this- it would have been actually a huge sum of money. Yes. Which would have forced him to uh, default on, his, on what he owed or uh, not pay his ex-wife. Or, I mean, it, it, would have, it would have put him in a, a real situation. Right. I mean, there's, there is no, you know, to my thinking until he was going to get that debt forgiven, some of that debt forgiven, there was no way out of it. I mean, he was, he was stuck. That's a really interesting test case. So what did you do? So, you know, I took a lot of the same approaches I took three or four years before with the other gentleman in my Bible study in, in Texarkana. 
you know, I, I just told him, look, you know, bottom line, it's very clear. You give what you're blessed to give. You know, that's second Corinthians nine. And I told him that whatever you can give, whether it's financial or whether it's in other categories, God will, will bless you. And, you know, flip that's Philippians four, you know, so I, I just sort of paired those two together again. And I felt like it had worked before and then it would work again. But um, I didn't feel like it was a sufficient answer for him because deep in my mind at that time, and I think deep in his mind at that time, he still felt like he owed the tithe. Um, And so there was sort of this, I I wanted to take some of the pressure off of him because I knew how dire his situation was. But at the same time, there was was a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance, I think, on both of our parts with how to handle it. So you told him that it's okay for a while to to not worry about it, and uh, how did how did he respond to that? He seemed thankful that I handled him with you know gently, <laughs> you know, and you know I told him you know maybe now you can't afford to tithe, and and you know maybe maybe five or ten years down the road you get clear of some of these things and you can tithe again, you know you can. So I sort of gave that as his goal. But in doing that, you were going against your own doctrine, weren't you? Yes. Yep. I was not teaching him uh, what he knew we, we, the church taught and what I knew the church taught. I was doing the best I could to improvise given the, the difficulty of the situation. Hmm. So uh, this, this situation that you're describing here with this guy really got you thinking about the subject, saying to yourself, well, maybe, maybe I don't have this all right. You know, that this, this test case had opened your eyes in a sense to maybe I need to research this more. Yes. Like I said, I've been working with this guy for almost a year and he became a dear friend of mine and I knew his heart and I just couldn't imagine that God would feel the worse about someone in his situation, not being able to tithe. But I also didn't want to settle it based on my emotional experience with this gentleman I wanted to really know what the Bible said about it. If the Bible still said, you know, hey, you know, this guy needs to tithe, then, you know, after I finished the study, I would have gone back to him and said, hey, look, you know, I know this looks dire, but I did some more research and, you know, I confirmed the church's teaching on this. And I think you should consider uh, downsizing your condo or selling your truck or, you know, whatever, whatever crazy kinds of things he would have to do to make the tithe work in his life. I would have encouraged him to go down those roads eventually. But as I studied it uh, during my time in seminary, I found a different picture emerging from the, from the pages of the Bible. Yeah, so what did you discover as you researched the subject? Most of what I had been taught about the tithe, and I, I, would, I would venture to say without a, hopefully without too much of an overgeneralization, that most of what most people are taught about the tithe is way too simplistic. I, I really do encourage uh, the listener, especially those inclined to disagree with me. Um, I really do encourage to really do a complete study of what the, where the tithe comes up in the Bible and, and what we can learn about the tithe in each of these specific contexts. And we'll, we're going to go through some of those things in our interview today and in, in maybe in other interviews as well. But, but really, I think if, if, we, if we dig into what the Bible says about the tithe, I think we'll find that what we what we were taught, uh, I know what I was taught was was way oversimplified, and it, it'll help clarify some things in terms of how the Bible teaches giving as a general topic. Yeah, I think most of our assumption is that t- 
tithe just means 10% and that ancient people, just like modern people, got lived in a monetary society where, you know, they didn't write checks, but they had coinage and they would just, you know, submit that or send it over to, you know, some sort of religious figure, whether a, a priest or a Levite. And, you know, that, that, that was that. So, you know, although they're not writing checks, they're not using Venmo or however it is people do things <laughs> online or in an app today, you know, it's really just the same thing, but, you know, using coins. I think that's probably what right. most of us think, and that it was a straight 10% right off the top. What, what were some misunderstandings that you came to see in light of your research on it? I was uh, encouraged by a recent theory on on myth busting. So I've got I've got five <laughs> myths, and then we can go through them uh, one by one, and hopefully we'll be able to bust all five myths. But uh, the list is myth number one: the tithe was monetary and applied to all Israelites. And you you already alluded to the whole monetary system, which is great. Uh, myth number two is the tithe was given at the beginning of the harvest. And this is going back to the whole idea of first fruits and tithe being related together. And it's the whole idea of, you know, give your best to God or give give of your first fruits to God. I don't you may have heard that talk before. Uh, myth number three, uh, the tithe was always exactly 10 percent, which is interesting. We'll get into the details on that. And I'm a math guy. So, <laughs> you know, I'm interested in, in figuring that out. Myth number four, the poor Israelites tithe to God. And then myth number five, Abraham tithing puts tithing in at least three administrations, making it applicable for all time. So if you want to, we can start going through those one by one. That sounds like a plan. A lot of these that you just mentioned here are common understandings that many of us have. So maybe you can show us why, where the flaw is here. Absolutely. So on the first one, myth number one, the tithe is monetary and applied to all Israelites. Uh, if we go back to the Old Testament, again, in the Mosaic law where tithing was codified, um, I'm going to read from uh, Leviticus 27, uh, verses 30 through 33, and I, I use the ESV. It says, uh, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. Uh, so uh, the mention of the word redeem here, if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe in verse 31, uh, redeeming meant converting it essentially to money or something that was going to be more easily transportable. Uh, you know, you have these farmers and these herdsmen all over the country. They're bringing everything to the temple. And so if the tithe was converted to money um, and it did not remain as an animal or a plant product, then it was 12%. They were to add a fifth. So that gets us to 12%, not 10%. So the tithe was not monetary, generally speaking. The tithe was considered to be essentially what we would call a food product. It was something that a farmer would grow or something that a rancher would essentially grow in terms of herds. <laughs> and if you look at all the Old Testament references to tithing, 
uh, you'll see the same thing. It always mentions specifically, essentially plant and animal products. Okay. Um, so, so specifically, there's never a mention uh, that of any provision that were, would require any tradesperson, like a mason or a carpenter or a merchant, uh, any of those kinds of trades. Um, there's never mention of any of them tithing. What would they tithe? You know, carpenters, would you tithe your hammer and your nails, you know, your, your wood, you know, it's just not there. Interesting. So you're, you're saying that in ancient Israel, it was just the farmers that, that had to tithe? Yep. The farmers. And I, I, I sort of give a caveat to the herdsmen, uh, which we'll get to here in a second, but it, it would have been wealthier herdsmen because, because here you can see it's every 10th animal. So if you think about calves that were born, uh, in a given year, you had to have at least 10 new calves born in a given year for you to tie the one of them. Okay. So it'd have to be a pretty big, it'd have to be enough of a flock to have 10 new calves. Uh, that's a pretty big flock to get 10 new calves. Okay. You know, you'd have to have like 20 or 30 cow, uh, cows to begin with, you know, males and females. And so what about number two here? The tithe was given at the beginning of the harvest. You're saying that this is also a myth? This is also a myth. If we pay attention to the, the wording again in Leviticus 27, it says, and every tithe of herds and flocks, this is verse 32, every 10th animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So it wasn't the first one. It was the 10th one. But what's more important to recognize is, Sean, if you put yourself in the category of a farmer in ancient Israel, how would you know when you'd given 10% of your corn crop? I, I guess once you finished... Uh, collecting it all is the only time when you would know what 10% really is. Right. Yeah. You, you wouldn't know what 10% was until everything was done. Hmm. So we can see there that, uh, the tithe was given actually at the end, at the end of the year when the harvest was done. And, you know, the harvest times were different, you know, different crops are harvested at different times. And so there'd be different tithing times throughout the year, uh, related to those harvests. The other th important thing is to consider that first fruits and tithe were considered different, completely different offerings in Leviticus. They're mentioned completely differently. They had a completely different purpose uh, and goal. The first fruits was really designed as an act of faith that you would give the best of the first of what you had. So again, putting yourself in the farmer situation, you're raising corn. You know, you, you start to first start to harvest things. Uh, you know, do you know if there's going to be an early frost that's going to kill the rest of your corn crops? Yeah, you don't. Right. So giving a small percent, the best of that initial harvest, that was an act of faith showing that you believe that God would, would bless you the rest of the way. Hmm. And so the first fruits and tithes are just, they're different for different purposes. Okay. So the first fruits and the tithes, they are different. Uh, you're not saying that first fruit offerings didn't exist because we see them pretty clearly in, uh, for example, in Exodus 23, 19, it says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You're not saying that they didn't do anything with their first fruits. You're just saying that's not the same as the tithe. Correct. Yeah. The first fruits okay. was, like I said, it's, a, it's an act of faith and worship to show that you trust that God's going to get you the rest of that harvest. And the tithe was essentially, as we're going to get to, it was designed in, in large part to support the priests and the Levites who needed food. Right. That's a, a function of the fact that God did not provide them a land inheritance. 
And if you don't have land, you can't raise your own crops. You can't have a garden or a farm. So you, in that society, would be dependent. And that's, that's indeed the case for the Levites and the priests. Right, exactly. So what about number three here, the tithe was always 10%. How can you say that's a myth, considering the fact that the word tithe just means 10%? Yeah, so this is where, you know, you got to be, uh, you know, I, I appreciate math. I come from a math background. And, and again, pouring over these scriptures very carefully, again, staying just here in Leviticus 27 for the moment, notice you have the 10th animal that passed under the staff was the one that was tithed. So you're not going to farm corn anymore. I'm going to have you herding, herding sheep here now for a second. So imagine you're herding sheep. You've got 25 new lambs this year. So you set them up, you're going to run them through a pen, and the 10th one that passes under your uh, shepherd's staff, those are the ones you're going to set aside to tithe. So you go, you count one, two, three, four, blah, blah, blah. You get to the 10th one, you pull that one aside. 11, 12, 13, blah, blah. You get to the 20th one, you pull them aside. But that you're not done. You still have five more cat, uh, lambs that, that walk through. Uh-huh. So you would tithe the 10th and the 20th lamb, and you had 25 new lambs. That's not 10%. That's 8%. Hmm, interesting. So, you know, using modern financial terminology, we would call that an effective tithing rate <laughs> of 8% <laughs> instead of 10%. <laughs> That's just unbelievable. So the, just looking at this in Leviticus, it uses very clearly the word tithe. The functional uh, usage of the word tithe is not what you would think from a, a strictly mathematical perspective of exactly 10% because you're dealing with you're dealing with a digital rather than an analog system here. Uh, you don't want to like cut a leg off one animal because <laughs> you know you have a percentage <laughs> right? right So you uh, and the grace is on the side of the herdsman, not the other way around. So it's not like you round up. Correct. To three in the case of twenty-five, it's you round down to two as far as it's explained here in Leviticus twenty-seven. That's I have never seen that before. That's really something. So a tithe is not always ten percent, but it could be ten percent, right? It, well, and in the case of corn, you know, hopefully they did a good job of figuring that out. You know, they'd wait till the harvest and they would, you know, collect all the grain or the corn or or whatever, and and then they would they would get the ten percent set aside and they'd take that into the temple. Yeah, but but here in the case of herds, you know, it was essentially never 10%. It was always under 10% unless you had a perfect, you know, multiple of 10 in terms of new calves or new lambs or whatever you were herding, new goats, you know, kids. And, do you know, is there ever an example of somebody that, that gave more because of this idea of if I give more, I get blessed more? I can't think of an example like that uh, off the top of my head, no. And I know we're going to come back to Malachi later because in so many of our minds, we, we hear we hear that that classic line, "Will a man rob God?" Right? And uh, you know, they're talking about the tithe there. Uh, but in Malachi, one of the issues was they were giving to God these animals that were blind and lame and. You know, Malachi mm-hmm. says, well, would you even give that to your governor and you're giving it to God? So, like, the idea of just giving God the animals you didn't want, uh, that's directly addressed here in Leviticus 27 as well. It says in verse 33, one shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither right. shall he make a substitute for it. Uh, so, in other words, like, it's just happenstance, you know, whatever the tenth one is, is the tenth one. 
Right, exactly. And they weren't a substitute. And again, that's another difference between the first fruit and the tithe is the first fruit was, like it says in Exodus, it was the best of the first uh, of your harvest. And this is just in terms of, uh, at least on the, the herdsman side of this tithe, it was literally the 10th. And they tell you, if you try to substitute good for bad or bad for good, it doesn't matter. If you try to substitute, uh, then then you do, you increase your effective tithing percentage <laughs> because you you have to do both. <laughs> you have to put both lambs or both calves or both kids or whatever they are to the Lord. All right. So what about poor Israelites? Surely they tithed as well, right? Well, so the other way that we know before we move on to the uh, myth number four, and this gets to your question a little bit here too, the tithe wasn't always 10% because there were not, there were more than one tithe. There was more than one tithe that's mentioned in the Bible in Deuteronomy 14 uh, in verses 22 to 27, it talks about a second tithe, uh, which scholars have deemed the festival tithe. Um, And so during, during certain festivals, there was a tithe where people would bring in. And again, the purpose here is very, uh, very simple. Uh, if you have a big party, um, like if you have a barbecue, Sean, don't you need, you know, pork or hamburgers or hot dogs or what, you know, whatever you're going to cook, you need food, right? You need, you need a salad, you need, uh, you know, potato salad or whatever. Absolutely. You need food. And so this is what this was for. Deuteronomy 14 uh, references that festival, what's called the festival tithe. So that, that was the second tithe. So that's on top of the first tithe. You have your first tithe to support the Levites and the priests, just generally given to them put into storehouses and kept for them for food for their entire year to sustain them. You got the festival tithe, which basically was bringing food to the big party in Jerusalem and celebrating God, having a good time with that. Um, In the next two verses in Deuteronomy 14 and 28 and 29, I will go ahead and read those because I think these are so significant. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. So not to Jerusalem. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So this is called the poor's tithe. It's interesting that in ancient Israel, just like God made other provisions for poor people, God made a provision for poor people to receive food from the tithe. Hmm. Why is it called poor tithe if it's for the Levite? Oh, because the Levites, like you said, they didn't have property. And so the, the scholars sort of lump them in with the rest of the, the fatherless and the sojourners as they call it sort of poor people. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see that now. Yeah, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Okay. Yeah, and they would be in financial hardship right. along with the Levite. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So this was part of the welfare system then. That's exactly right. Very good. What about poor people? Did they have to tithe as well? So Deuteronomy 14 uh, doesn't just bust the myth. I think it demolishes the myth. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't uh, think that the poor tithe, if they receive the tithe, if they specifically mm-hmm. receive the tithe. Um, and what we've already seen in the provision about animals passing under the staff, you know, if you had fewer than nine lambs, new lambs in a year, or fewer than nine calves, or fewer than nine new kids in a given year, talking about goats and not children, Sean. Okay. <laughs> well, I have fewer fewer than nine children, so I'm good. In a given year, too. So I, let's hope that... In a given year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so anyway, if uh, we've already seen that if you had uh, you know less than nine uh, to be, to in a new year, you wouldn't have tithed anyway. Even if you were a, a relatively wealthy rancher, if you only had nine new lambs in a year, there's not a tenth one to pass under the rod, right? If we see in the specific provision uh, that we're talking about farmers who have the food that they're already you know growing and they're providing and they're selling, but they're keeping some for themselves. And we're talking about ranchers that have at least you know 10 or more new calves or new lambs or whatever the case might be in a given year. Uh, there's no provision for poor to tithe. And specifically Deuteronomy 14 says they receive the tithe every third year. So they absolutely did. They, there's no way um, to say that the poor tithed. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. They received the tithe. And and the the case of the cereal tithe or the grain offering and that sort of thing, that would only apply to people who have a functional farm, right? That's correct. Yeah. So if you're poor, if you're gleaning from those fields, none of that's yours. I mean, you're you're just gleaning because the Lord told them to leave the corners unharvested, you don't have any of your own uh, to grow. Interesting. And uh, what about myth number five here? Abraham gives us a way to say that tithing is not just part of the law. I mean, what, what you've been looking here over and over is Leviticus. I brought up Exodus. You brought up Deuteronomy. We're looking at the Torah saying, well, this is what the tithe is. We're defining it based on that. But if Abraham tithed before the coming of the law— then surely tithing is not something that's just essential to the law or wrapped up in the law. It's it's a more universal principle. How are you gonna? How, how can you bust that myth? Sure, I think the first thing is to say that you know we have to acknowledge that a covenantalist and a dispensationalist would look at this situation differently. And so, you know, putting tithing in multiple administrations, you know, covenantalists wouldn't necessarily agree with that thought process. But for the purpose of busting this myth, I'm happy to assume that I'm a dispensationalist. So let's we can put on our dispensationalist hat for a moment, Sean. Why is it still a myth? Hold, hold on, I got to get it out of the closet. It's, it's <laughs> kind of down at the bottom in a box. Okay. All right. All right. So, Here. Okay, I got it on. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. So we're dispensationalists. Why is this still a myth? Okay. A couple considerations here. Uh, first, what Abraham offered to Melchizedek was a spoils of war tithe, not the standard tithe mentioned later in the law of Moses. So if you remember back to when Abraham uh, offered the tithe, it was after, uh, you know, he went and, uh, you know, rescued uh, a bunch of people and he took a lot of plunder. And then he offered to Melchizedek uh, a tithe of that, of the spoils of war. And it's a completely different situation. Um, it's not what's talked about in, in the law later at all. And, and the other thing is that there's no biblical evidence that Abraham ever tithed again. You know, there, he tithed the one time in a spoils of war situation, uh, but there's no indication or record of him tithing ever again. And so, you know, you may think, oh, well, that's, you know, whatever. Maybe the Bible doesn't mention it. Abraham didn't just offer tithes. He offered all sorts of offerings, uh, especially burnt offerings. And burnt offerings, if you if you just do a, a basic study of burnt offerings compared with the tithe, burnt offerings come up a lot more in the Old Testament than tithing. And burnt offerings were offered, um, again, if we have our dispensational caps on, they were offered uh, by Abraham and by people very early uh, in the Bible, all the way through, you know, Christ's time. And even, you know, there, there were still burnt offerings going on in the temple 
during the book of Acts, even if the Christians weren't doing it. Right. Um, so if, if we think that tithes are still applicable because Abraham did it and they did it in Moses's time and they did it all throughout the Old Testament and then they did it in Christ's time and then they, they probably still did it. Well, then that same logic would apply to a bunch of these other sacrifices because you see these sacrifices all throughout before uh, the law of Moses gets put, put down on paper. Yeah. So in one sense, you're justifying too much. And on the other sense, you're justifying too little, too much in the sense that if this reasoning holds true, then you should also be offering sacrifices too little in the sense that we're only talking about the spoils of war and only once in your lifetime. Uh, so, yeah, it's really not the best precedent. But there is still something of a precedent here, wouldn't you say? Uh, something of because of his incredible faith. You know, it's called the faith of Abraham and that he's the father of faith, and that we are Abraham's children. If we are of faith, and I really see his faith come out strongly here, where he says to the king of Sodom, I don't want to take any of the spoils, just, you know, whatever the men used, that will take. And then, you know, what he does with Melchizedek is, you know, giving a tenth to God. You know, these are acts of faith that are examples for us, right? Yeah, those are absolutely examples uh, for us and how to, to walk in faith and to trust God in the financial category as well. But I think, you know, we just can't take that too literally to mean that tithing is specifically applicable uh, to us anymore. The final thing we have to consider is, is the book of Hebrews. And specifically I have in mind Hebrews 10 here, which specifically says that the sacrifice has ended with Christ. So all we have to do is prove that the tithe was part of the sacrificial system And then it simply ends uh, through the sacrifice of Christ. And sure enough, the tithe is mentioned in Leviticus uh, with all of the other offerings as part of the sacrificial system. So it should have ended with Christ. Okay, so uh, we're going to have to flesh that out a little bit more in future episodes, because just to clarify, you're not saying that therefore Christians shouldn't give today, right? That's right. Yeah, we Christians should absolutely give in every category, including financial. But what I'm saying is, is that we can't look to the tithe as as more than just a type of what what came later. Okay, very good. Right. So so here is what I would define the biblical tithe. A tithe is a pre-assigned portion of crops or herds grown or raised in the land of Israel offered to God in the temple for the sustaining of the Levites and the priests to serve as food for festivals and to support the poor in local areas every third year. In modern terms, the tithe amounted to an income tax for farmers and wealthy herdsmen in order to support those who did not have land or food resources for themselves, Levites, the priests, and the poor specifically. Okay. So that's a real helpful definition. And, uh, you know, I'd be curious to hear if anyone has any pushback on that in the comments for this episode. But uh, I think this is a good place for us to end for today. Uh, Is there any final points you'd like to make before we close out? Just that um, I'm really enjoying this conversation so far, and I hope that our listeners are as well. All right. Very good. Well, that's it for this interview. Next time, we'll get into the New Testament. If you'd like to find out more about Will Barlow and his ministry, you can check him out at studydrivenfaith.org. 
where he's got a number of articles on this subject of giving, if uh, you want to look ahead and see what he plans to talk about, as well as a number of other subjects about which he wrote articles in various series, and also some audio teachings. So take a look at that. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, feel free to come on to restitutio.org and find episode 384, Giving in the Old Testament, and leave your comment there. I will just preempt a little bit of the comments on Malachi chapter 3, saying that that is a scripture that Barlow is going to cover later. So if, if that's what your question is regarding, I'm just going to have to ask that you hold on to that until we get to cover that subject, which we'll do in our in our third and final episode on this series. Briefly, I wanted to also read out some comments from our previous episode, episode 383, Coming to America with Timmy Paul Lupe. And uh, on that episode, Donna wrote in, I had already known Timmy Paul's story, but listening to his testimony again just reinforced what I had already known about him. God has definitely called him to be here with us to do what he is doing, and that is bringing others to know our wonderful God and Father. Keep up the good work, Timmy Paul. You are loved. Also, Steve wrote in saying, Thanks, Timmy Paul and Sean. I love this interview. I particularly resonated with what Timmy Paul shared at the end about how he was reaching out and connecting with the local community. I love the proactivity, creativity, and the relational way you're reaching out with God's love and good news. I really believe a key for the church moving forward is for it not just to focus on preaching and defending the gospel as important as those things are, but to emphasize living it out and dialoguing it in context of relationships, community, and blessing and helping people, especially those outside the church. It's very easy the longer we're Christians, to get stuck in a Christian bubble with no connection to the outside world. We're like salt stuck in a salt shaker. A real key in reaching this generation, I believe, is for people to feel the love before they hear the truth. Dave Ferguson recounts in one of his books reading a doctoral thesis entitled Blessers versus Converters. The researcher had looked at two teams of short-term missionaries that visited Thailand with distinctly different missional strategies. One team, referred to as the Blessers, went with the intention of simply blessing people. They saw their mission as blessing whoever, they, whoever came their way in whatever practical ways they could. On the other hand, the converters went with the sole intention of converting people and evangelizing everyone they encountered. The researchers found the blessers also had almost 50 times as many conversions than the converters. Wow, that's quite a statement there. If you're curious about this episode, go back and listen, if you haven't already, to episode 383, Coming to America, to hear what Timmy Paul is doing here in New York to reach out to people in a mostly secular context and how he's able to bring them together. Also, if you're curious and would like to know more about evangelism in our modern time and how we can restore authentic Christianity in the sense of the Great Commission and live that out today, I also encourage you to check out episode 315 by Joshua Anderson, which was provocatively titled, Why We Hate Evangelism and Why We Aren't Doing It, uh, which is actually the first part of his seminar, on evangelism, and we have that exclusive content here on Restitutio, so take a look at that back to episode 315, 
with Anderson, and uh, he he gives a lot of great both intellectual as well as practical insight into how we can do this faithfully in our own generation today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can you can contribute at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.